You're listening to Nick Luck Daily. This edition is brought to you by Fitzdares, by the Racehorse Owners Association, and by Thoroughbred Racing Commentaries Global Rankings. Good morning, welcome to the show. It's Friday the 21st of January. Lovely morning again here in TW11. So much so that Lingfield passed its 9 o'clock inspection and the first day of the Lingfield Winter Million will go ahead. As of course will Ascot tomorrow and the big clash between Shishkin and Energumen, more of which in a moment. Other news today, as we anticipated yesterday, Robbie Dunn has indeed lodged an appeal into the 18-month suspension that he received at the hands of the BHA's Independent Disciplinary Panel. Whilst we digest what John Whittingdale MP had to say to the AGM of the Bethian Gaming Council yesterday. I'll also be talking to owner Tim Sider about his most successful week so far as a racehorse owner, which could yet continue tomorrow. James Willoughby is here to discuss how 2022 might shape up from a global perspective. J.A. McGrath talks about Golden 60's bid to equal the record of 17 consecutive wins in Hong Kong. And Dali Australia's Alistair Pulford tells us about the pressures and joys of shuttling stallions between hemispheres. But first First of all, Enegumen versus Shishkin. And you feel all week, really, that Shishkin has had the upper hand as regards the commentary on this podcast. As I welcome Lydia Hislop to the programme today, Lydia, I rather sense that you are itching to make the case for Enegumen and how he can beat Nicky Henderson's much vaunted stable star. I think so, because I, I mean, I, n- neither horse is as yet proven to be the uh, top class two mile in open company grade one you know top dog this is the race that will go a long way if not all the way towards settling that because these are the two i think claimants for that title and we need to think about what they've achieved so far well, this is they're both horses that are coming into their second season over fences um having been novices last season and ended up not being fully tested because he didn't get to the Cheltenham Festival he had a setback and Shishkin was was tested of sorts but a, a lot of his form is in in small fields and he's beaten a lot of the same horses and the Arkle ended up being a bit of a silly race because of the way in which it was run and he was very dominant I mean he's been odds on for every race he's encountered so far so he's, he's as a, in his novice season he was one to six one to three one to seven four to nine one to eight um He's beaten Grenatine at four to nine in the um, Desert Orchid this season. And that was a, a really good performance. We know breaking down his performances, particularly at Kempton both times, um, that he has a lot of untapped potential. The way in which he's finished off his races suggests that we haven't seen the summit of Shishkin's ability. But the same applies to Enegamen. Um, and we, we got a glimpse last time in the Hilly Way when Notebook tried to take him on for a while, that Enegamen is completely unfussed jumping under pressure at speed. It didn't bother him in any way whatsoever. And they went hard for quite a long time to the extent that Notebook ended up beating 42 lengths. And Enegamen, though, kept on for an eight and a half length victory over Daily Tiger Size and Potsy Cashback, clearly horses that aren't in his league. But nonetheless, given the way the race had run, that was still very impressive, particularly first time out. At, in a race that um, first time out in a season where many of Willie Mullins' horses seemed very much to need that. Um, 
he has, um, I think, had a bar for uh, Shishkin Zarkel, a deeper test, I think I would argue, um, as a novice, or he was set to as a novice chaser. He beat Captain Guinness by eight and a half lengths. He was in the um, Irish um, Arkle at the Dublin Racing Festival. That was a, a deep and competitive race. And then obviously he won at Punchestown and comfortably accounted for Janadil. And you can argue by the time of the Ryanair novice chase that maybe it's end of term stuff and some other horses might be over the top. But I think these are horses that at the moment have very, very similar claims. I think if Enigamen is going to beat Shishkin, it's going to be here. I personally think that Enigamen might have an issue with tight turning left-handed tracks. So something like the old course, which is the host of the uh, Queen Mother Champion Chase, might cause that horse to have a bit, a bit of an issue. I think he'd be fine in something like the Ryanair on, on the new course. I think that would be fine. Um, so I think if th- this is where he has the best chance of downing Shishkin. And I think the gap between them is too large. I think they, they are pretty much, from what we know so far, the same horse. Yeah, from what we know so far, that's the salient point, isn't it? What I picked out of that was the fact that apart from their last run, so the Hilly Way for Enegumen and the Desert Orchid for Shishkin, these are horses who have never raced outside novice company, either in mm-hmm. hurdle races or in, in, in steeplechases or indeed in, in, in their very early careers in point to points. Exactly. And so... And the and the, the the jump there is very big. It's a bit like uh, it's a bit like GCSEs to A levels. <laughs> um, do you know what I mean? In that in that huge gap. <laughs> well, in that you know, in novice company, you know, certain horses are more precocious. Um, they are readier at that point, and you see a change once they move into open company. Horses that are able to jump in novice company sometimes can't live with the. Um, the switch up into a fully open company and there'll be a, a question of maturity as well both of these horses are eight uh, they are both um, sort of moving into the into their prime um, I think it's going to be a really exciting matchup but I mean Shishkin we, we know we know from him winning the supreme that he has got game because lots of things went wrong that day and he still managed to get back up and win. So I've got no concerns about his ability uh, to fight. Um, I'm, con- I'm encouraged by the way with which Enegamen dispensed with a lesser horse in notebook um, and then kept on, that he's got uh, quite a bit of grit as well. But I suppose what he's proved there that maybe Shishkin hasn't or hasn't just quite the same degree is the ability to jump accurately under pressure whilst you're being constantly hassled by a pretty good horse. Uh, that is going to be tested in both of them this time around. And, and, I mean, we shouldn't completely ignore First Flow either, because obviously he won this race last year. And when he found that the pace wasn't strong enough for him, he, he moved on in front. David Bass moved him on in front from about the seventh fence. And in the end, he came home seven lengths clear of Politologue. I do feel that this is another order again, Enigamen and Shishkin. But the point does still need to be made that first flow has done it in open company and as yet these two have not at grade one level i mean and if there is any frailty in either of the big two then first flow will expose it because he is as hard as nails and he wants to go this way around absolutely um absolutely um he does have the propensity to um (laughs) to crash through a fence doesn't he that's very first flow he's going to be put under a lot of pressure here i think um, but they, but he in, in turn is going to put uh, other horses under some pressure. So I think it's an absolutely, absolutely fabulous event. And um, 
yeah I, I mean I, I personally uh, I'm not going to get involved uh, it financially um, uh, certainly emotionally I will be because I think it's just an incredible event um, but I think this is Enega Men's chance and I don't think I mean I, I, I find it slightly surprising that people are so sure that Shishkin is going to win I think it's it's all up for grabs personally mm. I mean I think Shishkin will win but I need I needed to hear that case for Enega Men um, so I, I couldn't sort of re- so readily so readily dismiss him. It is intriguing. Let's hope though, Lydia, that this is the first of many. Oh, that, that would be amazing. And that if one of them tastes defeat, they don't simply think, "All right, well, I'm not going to try that again." Yeah, absolutely. Uh, that would be yeah, that would be a real shame were were that to happen. I mean, it'd be it depends on the how you're beaten on mm. Saturday, doesn't it? In terms of what conclusions. Uh, will be drawn as a result of that and there is always the Ryanair um, at the festival of course Willie Mullins has Alaho who reappears on Sunday or runs um, for the second time this season on Sunday in the horse and jockey hotel chase at Thurlers so um, there's that horse standing in the way and he was magnificent now, normally you'd be lamenting the fact that there was the Ryanair in order to give a, an outlet to a horse that might get beaten. But given the fact that Men was put up in your Road to Cheltenham column early doors as a huge prize for the Ryanair, you've probably got mixed feelings about this, haven't you? Well, I mean, you say you put up early doors at a huge price. I think that price is still available there. So it's not exactly the shrewdest movement that I've ever made in my life. But it's all based on the, my, my old course theory of Enegamen. And at that point, at the, uh, April, I recommended it, there was a chance that Alaho might drop down to two miles. I think that chance has distinctly receded. Um, but it also, it, there's all sort of knock-on effects. It, it depended many, in many ways on Shaq and Passoir. And is he... Um, fit enough to be able to be heading towards the Dublin Chase at the Dublin Racing Festival next month. And obviously the signs seem to be, yes, he is, because Enigamen is here at Ascot. Um, and so it'll be interesting to see what Shaq and Bassoir does, because it, it, Willie Mullins has that ability to shuffle the pack uh, and has horses of, of enough calibre to be able to do that. So he can be uh, reactive. Um, mixed feelings? I mean, I, I don't really. I mean, I, I, it, what, what I... What, I'm te- I was teasing what, you, really. Well, I know. What I've backed is irrelevant, isn't it? It's just going to be an in, in, incredible, incredibly good good horse race. What do you feel? So having me having tried to make a case for Enigamen and you being a Shishkin fan, how do you feel about that? I still, I still feel I give the edge to, to Shishkin and, and that Supreme Novices Hurdle actually does make a difference to me because I, I think it's the sort of emblem of what I've seen glimpses of elsewhere in his career is that he finishes out his races very strongly. I was listening to David Minton yesterday comparing him to Altior and Sprinter Sacra, other horses he's bought, and he really felt strongly that, that Shishkin would, would improve for the greatest test of stamina at the trip that you could, you could throw his way. And this will certainly be it. Um, I think Enegamen's a very, very fast horse. I thought he had a hard race in the hilly way for his comeback. And I would say mm. Shishkin might have had the slightly, ironically, as it's transpired, the slightly smoother prep into this race. Agree. I agree with that. I agree with all of that, actually. Um, I do think Enegamen is a very strong stayer at two miles. In that sense, I think they're very similar. Um, so that's why I think that this matchup could be so fabulous. So that's the big clash. More of today's other news in a few moments' time. But it could be a a big day again tomorrow, Saturday, for racehorse owner Tim Sider, who's enjoying something of a purple patch, having co-owned last weekend's classic chase winner Eclair Surf, and also a treble across two venues on Wednesday. 
Tim and his wife Charlotte have Killer Clown in the handicap chase at Ascot tomorrow, plus three further runners at Taunton, so another good day could well be on the cards for those red and white checked silks that are becoming so familiar on British racecourses. He is a steward of the Jockey Club as well, so effectively on their board of directors. I spoke to him earlier and he began by telling me where it all started. I can remember, you know, studying the form in the in the sporting life whilst I should have been revising for my A-levels. I was at a Catholic boarding school and there was a, a monk there, Father Adrian, who who was mad on, on racing. And so it, it probably was from Father Adrian, who sadly died this year. I went to his funeral. It, it wasn't something within my family, then, but within Charlotte's family. Charlotte's father was vet of the course at Ascot and Windsor for 40 plus years. Um, so they, they were a great racing family. In fact, we had our wedding reception at Ascot Racecourse. Does, is that my right? I think he gave you a, a, a horse as a wedding present. <laughs> That's not quite true. No, no uh, dear old Philip did make me pay for it. No, but we got back from our our honeymoon, and uh, and uh, he picked us up from the airport. And one of the topics of conversation on the on the journey back to Charlotte's parents' house was that um, he had bought a, a horse. Would I like to take a share in it? Which uh, which we did. That was the first ownership uh, back in 1987. And all these years later, as I said, the, the colours are, are very familiar. It strikes me, Tim, that you sort of approach it with, you, know, you have a slightly different approach to, to quite a few of the more, the more recent owners insofar as that you have a lot of horses with quite a lot of different trainers and you're seeking to have significant representation a lot of the time do you simply just is it a fix do you just need your fix effectively i I, th- I think that that sums it up very well i from the trainer point of view i just i mean i think most trainers in well particularly in the jump game uh, i don't really know the flat trainers but in the jump game they, they're just great fun they're very interesting people and you know i i do like supporting smaller smaller trainers and i do like to be it doesn't quite sum it up, but, you know, a slightly bigger cog in in, in, in a smaller yard. And as I've said before, what I'm really, I'm not, of course I'd love to have festival winners, um, uh, but what I'm really interested in is having, you know, the, a runner in the in the feature handicap chase on a Saturday. For the last 20 years, I, I'd, if anybody invites me to do anything outside of racing, I say, I'm, I'm sorry, I don't because I go racing on. On, on Saturday, so I I think it'd be very unusual if if you didn't see Charlotte and I racing on a, on on a Saturday during the jump season. I mean, it's quite refreshing, really, to hear someone who actually wants to do it because they want to go racing and they want to participate and they want to have fun while they're doing it. Well, that that that's it. It it is our life. It takes up. I'm I'm involved in the administration of racing now through the jockey club and you know, steward of the jockey club and, and what have you. So I do get involved in, and I find all the issues of, of racing, the gambling review we're doing at the moment, owner's prize money, the levy, all, all the issues of racing. I find that incredibly interesting as well. So it's not just being at Wincanton w- with a runner. I, I, you know, I love going to the meetings um, and, you know, going to the industry dinners and, and, and what have you. And Tim, are you going to win one of the big Saturday races tomorrow at Ascot with Killer Clown? Uh, well, em- Emma thinks we've got a good chance. You know, he, he jumps well. I don't think he had a particularly hard race at Wincanton. Uh, the grounder and Ascot should suit him. I will be at Taunton though, Nick. <laughs> so will I. <laughs> well, I'll see you at Taunton, but but Charlotte and the and the family will be will be at Ascot. But <laughs> How many runners? You've got a few runners at Taunton, haven't you? I got three at Taunton, including a, um, a lovely horse that used to be with um, Philip Hobbs, 
um, Oakley that is now uh, running with um, he's now with uh, Richard Bandy, who's been a who's been a fantastic um, uh, trainer for me this this season. I I I, I I've had some uh, the trainers have done done so well this season. Emma Lavelle has a forty two percent strike rate for me this season. Well, you you can't say fairer than that. Um, best of luck tomorrow, and I will uh, see you at Taunton. Thanks, Nick. Tim Sider there, an owner riding the crest of a wave. Now, other important news today. Robbie Dunn has appealed his 18-month suspension. Lydia is with me again. Lydia, what does this mean? What's the process here? Uh, well, um, once the notice of an appeal has been given, um, that, that appeal can only be lodged on, on very um, specific terms. You've got to identify the decision that you're appealing against. In this case, uh, Robbie Dunn's team is appealing against the finding and the penalty, not just seeking mitigation on the penalty. So they'll have had to have submitted a, a, a deposit and they've got to uh, say what the grounds for the appeal are, reasons why it would be substantively unjust to allow the original ruling to stand and where appropriate to apply for leave to present new evidence. So um, the point here is that appeal boards, uh, appeals of the of disciplinary panel decisions do not tend to be re-hearings almost always. They're based on procedural or legal issues or the submission of new evidence. It's not a re-hearing of existing evidence. So I suppose new facts could cause existing evidence to be viewed in a different light and that's the reason why that would be um, presented. So the independent judicial panel will now convene an appeal board for the hearing and that duty will fall to Bruce Blair QC because the judicial panel chairman Brian Barker sat in the first instance. The judicial panel will, um, Bruce Blair will liaise with representatives of all parties uh, regarding a potential date for the hearing and there'll be no comment from the BHA now because of course it's an ongoing case. Um, The appeal board decides whether new evidence can be submitted um, and in when permission is sought to submit that evidence they must lay out the nature and relevance and why it couldn't be introduced to the original hearing. After hearing an appeal, an appeal board shall have the power to allow or dismiss the appeal, exercise any power which the original decision maker could have exercised, i.e. the the disciplinary panel, including increasing or decreasing any, any penalty, award, order or sanction, remit the matter for rehearing, make a cost award or take other action as appropriate. So um, there's been a lot of heat and light about this, but it should be stressed, it is Robbie Dunn's absolute right to appeal. It's part of a fair and balanced system of justice. And, you know, we should be proud of that. It had been widely sort of viewed that the um, reasons set out by the discipline panel by um, Brian Barker QC had made um, the decision unappealable. But clearly that that is not the case. But let, let's see what happens. I mean, as I say, it is absolutely Robbie Dunn's right to be able to put forward this appeal. And, uh, you know, that, that should be recognised and, and not criticised. There's been some speculation as to how much this might cost. Well, a lot, I expect, is the answer. And, and how it's going to be funded. Uh, I did ask the Professional Jockeys Association, their acting chief executive, Dale Gibson, uh, whether the PJA has any obligation to a jockey financially or otherwise when they appeal a disciplinary panel finding like this, or is it essentially up to, up to Robbie Dunn himself? And he replied, it is purely up to Robbie Dunn. So as I mentioned on yesterday's podcast, the Betting and Gaming Council had their AGM yesterday. And one of the keynote speakers was John Whittingdale MP, who'd been the minister in charge of the gambling review until being replaced by Chris Philp. I suspect, given what John Whittingdale was saying, Lydia, that the BGC and indeed 
racing and everybody else who's got a vested interest in this gambling review wishes that John Whittingdale was still in situ. Well, John was warning that if you make it too hard for people to bet, you can place too many hurdles over which that they have to jump in order to, um, to in terms of affordability checks, then they are not going to want to jump them. Me- measures should really be, be addressing those people who are at risk and at vulnerable and shouldn't really be extended to be requirements for other people who are not. Um, John Whittingdale was warning about the danger of driving people towards uh, the black market um, and noted that some campaign groups say that this element is exaggerated, but he said, I believe the black market is real. He did say, though, that I mean, it was it was uh, put to him that um, Chris Philp would be tougher on the industry. And Whittingdale said that that misjudged Chris Philp. He said, I think he will proceed on the basis of evidence and will wish to preserve the industry as one which plays a major part in our leisure economy, creates jobs and benefits the Treasury. While all that was happening, there was quite an interesting article about the progress of the tote and particularly its role in the world pool from Robin Oakley in the in the Spectator, Lydia. What point was he making? Well, he was saying that quietly, quietly, um, the tote has uh, built itself up as a, uh, a viable and uh, attractive option. It has been allowed to dwindle uh, previously and it, it starts with um, an interview with um, Alex Frost talking about his interest in, in breeding um, with his wife Olivia and talking about the setup of that. So he used to be a managing director of Merrill Lynch, um, he then retired from the city, he'd always um, <laughs> moaned <laughs> about uh, the uh, poor prize money that the devil's British racing and his wife said you can either drive me mad by moaning on about it for 20 years or do something about it so he b- drew up a plan for the tote um, and that's become the UK Tote Group, which is funded by 160 owners, breeders and others um, whose essential DNA, says Alex, is a passion for improving racing finances. The article also contains a significant quote from Nick Smith, who is Ascot Racecourse's Director of Racing and Public Affairs, who called the advent of um, the World Pool involvement for British racing the most significant change in the landscape for decades. And that will and has inspired um, racecourses um, to uh, reshuffle um, their their meetings and the order of races within their meetings in order to have races that qualify for the World Pool that will be of particularly positive appetite to an international audience. So um, it's the, the contrast was made by Robin Oakley, for example, that in 2018, the win pool for the King George Ascot was £68,000. Last year, with World Pool involvement, it was £677,000. And so there's big liability, liquidity with robust pools, building betting volumes, and it can generate between £600,000 to £800,000 to racecourses. So with the burgeoning success of that world pool and great hopes for the next year or two, it seems entirely fitting we round off this podcast with a bit of a world tour. We'll start in Australia, at Dali, Australia, in the Hunter Valley, with Alistair Pulford, the head of Stallions, who's just bid farewell temporarily to the, the clutch of shuttling Stallions that do their bit in both hemispheres. And Alistair, when I look down the roster and some of the, the new boys, Blue Point and Gayath and Harry Angel and Earthlight and co., I, I wonder if you've ever had quite such an exciting group of horses trying to strut their stuff across the hemispheres i don't think so nick um look these are you know obviously the success that godolphin have had in the northern hemisphere in recent years has been 
tremendous. And the acquisition of horses like you know, Tudon Hot and Harry Angel you know, through their racing careers has has meant our roster is phenomenal at the moment. I mean, the the opportunity we have as a stud uh, with these stallions is is just marvellous. I mean, the, the sort of poster boy for the shuttler, I suppose, was a, an Australian horse himself, Exceed and Excel, who had 33 consecutive seasons and shuttled for, for 16 of the, those years. I mean, it's asking an awful lot for, for most horses to do that. But but sort of what qualities do you look for in a in a horse to, to work in, in both hemispheres? Because as sure as eggs is eggs, they're not all going to. The market is becoming pickier and pickier, and I think that that's in both hemispheres. You know, going back, you know, way back before the shuttle stallion started, you know, the, the, the standard northern hemisphere horse that came down, there was either a group three winner, group one placed with a good pedigree, or a group one winner with no pedigree at all. Um, the shuttle stallion, you know, the shuttle business changed that all completely. And, and now, you know, Australia is having sort of led the way with the shuttles, having been first cab off the rank, so to speak, with um, with Robert Sangster and, and Coolmore and John Massara sort of, um, you know, sort of initiating the, the move. Um, we ended up with stall- you know, the best stallions from America or the, you know, the best new stallions, not all the proven stallions always come down, obviously, but the, the best stallion from America, the UK, um, Ireland and Japan. Uh, ended up in Australia, so our gene pool is absolutely fantastic at the moment. And and now to 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 just to to get noticed, you have to be a high quality horse. You know, a horse like a two down hot or a blue point who's a multiple Group One winner, you know, on the world's biggest stage with with a pedigree to boot. You know, um, so it, it isn't easy to to just just the, attract the attention of the marketplace. But you've got to sell these nominations, and you've got a lot of competing attractions within your own within your own stallion barn, let alone with other people's. We saw how uh, Coolmore, you mentioned, effectively mined that Danehill sire line for for so many years. What is what is really attracting an Australian breeder at the moment? What sort of what stallions and sire lines are they thinking? Yeah, we want a piece of that. We want to get that into our bloodlines. Um, well, we're obviously saturated with Daniel. Daniel's been such a tremendous success in the Southern Hemisphere um, that probably 50% of thoroughbreds in, in, in Australia, or maybe more, uh, uh, trace back to Daniel either through their direct mail line or through the sire of their dam. So we're, we are saturated. So everyone's looking for the, the outcross, the antidote. Um, and horses you know, like Shamodal and Dubawi and now their sons are you know, hopefully the ones to provide that. Obviously, Sadler's Wells Lines is another one. And we've had success with Medaglia Doro and a couple of his sons. Um, but you know, that's, that's essentially what we're looking for. Something that, that is an outcross, um, that's important. But, you know, look, good horses are good horses. And if they're good horses out of a Danehill mare or good horses by a Danehill line stallion, we're still going to take them. Um, Blue Point's a horse that particularly interests me because of the Australian interest and the global interest in Royal Ascot. For him to win the two big sprints there in the same week and become the first horse since your iconic Choisir to do it, how much has that really grabbed the, the attention? Uh, enormously. I mean, it, it obviously made him... Uh, extremely popular uh, from an Australian point of view. Shamadal, his sire, did fantastically well done here. Uh, you know, in a reasonably brief uh, shuttle career before injury prevented his shuttling any further. Um, siring horses like um, you know, some, the number of top Group One horses, and then his son Lupe de Vega obviously carried on. So the line is—it's a really tough line. You know, Shamadal was a was a 
a horse with tremendous substance and, and um, constitution, much like his family member Street Cry. And I think that's what Australians like. You know, our horses have to stand up to to training. They, um, you know, they, they 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 have to be tough. You know, that's that's what we're looking for. And and Blue Point certainly was tough. He raced um, from you know two right through to his fifth season, and and you know was an elite horse at every you know in every season he raced. Obviously, we know and we've talked about the 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 influence of Northern Dancer, for example, the the Kentucky Derby winner on on European bloodstock, and the way that Europe and America have have traded bloodstock ever since, and the dirt influences on turf, and the turf influences back to dirt. I'm sort of fascinated by how Australia has done well with Medagliadoro, and whether Australia now is actually the place where you can sort of meld the preferences of the two surfaces as regards stallions and do so effectively principally on, on, on turf. And, and we saw that with Street Cry, uh, his ability to sire a champion race mare in Zenyatta, and of course his ability to sire Winks, a, a great Australian and global global racing icon. Uh, absolutely. I mean, yeah, we we pay, certainly, you know, internally at, at um, Dali in Australia and Godolphin in Australia, we pay far less attention to the dirt turf bias than probably anyone, just because we don't think there's much in it. Um, you know, we've had, you know, Medagliadora and Street Cry, you know, obviously are great examples. More Than Ready was another one. To Hear was another one. Um, you know, Northern Dancer, you mentioned, you know, he was a, he was a horse that won a Kentucky Derby, but he's essentially one of the, the you know, well, the great turf sire of the world. So it's, you know, we, we just take it with a bit of a grain of salt. I think American racing, I'm, I, I think appeals to us in Australia because, you know, it's, it is tough. It's survival of the fittest. They, they, they get out and they run. It's not very tactical. It's, it's just the first one to the post wins. Um, and I think you've got to, you know, you've got to be a good horse to cope with that. And, and finally, Alistair, the, the actual mechanics of, of shuttling stallions, and we know how well horses fly these days and it, go, it, go, it goes without saying, but, but for you, the, the pressure of, of getting them to your stud and then getting them back to, to the UK. How intensely do you feel that? It's always a great day when they get off the float, when they arrive, when they come out of quarantine and they make it to Kelvin side or, or North Park safely. Um, we look after them obviously like our own, um, as you would. <laughs> and, uh, but it's a, it's a big relief when they, when they get on the plane uh, in Sydney to get, head back home. And then we get the call uh, from the from the northern hemisphere to say they're safely back in their boxes at Dallam Hall or Kildangan or or at um, John Abel in America. So, look, there's a it's a great pleasure, but it's a, it's also a great privilege. And and as I said, you know, just having a horse like Tudon Hot parading before clients uh, in Kelvin Side is just you know, it's a it's a great thing to be able to show Australians a horse of that quality. Alistair Pulford there, the head of Darley Stallions in Australia. Well, it is Friday, and that means that we check in with our friends at Thoroughbred Racing Commentary and take stock of the latest global thoroughbred rankings. And what we thought we'd do today is to strip out all the horses that have retired to stud or are no longer with us and bring you the top 10 active horses in the world with a view to seeing how 2022 might play out from a global perspective. So, at 10, 17th overall, is the British champion stayer Trushan, trained by Alan King. At 9 is Life is Good, the Breeders' Cup Dirt Mile winner bound for the Pegasus. At 8 is Zaki, just outside the actual top 10 at 13. Australian star transformed by Annabelle Nisham about to begin his spring campaign. At 7 is Mishrif, 
for John Gosden, bound for the Saudi Cup. At six is very elegant, the Melbourne Cup winner. Five is Baid for William Haggis, unbeaten. At four is Golden 60, looking to equal the record set by Silent Witness for most consecutive wins in Hong Kong at 17 this weekend. At three is Nature Strip, the brilliant Australian sprinter we may see at Royal Ascot. At two is Japanese uh, Horse of the Year, Euphoria. And at number one is the American Horse of, Ele- uh, Horse of the Year, Elect, Nick's Go, who will take on Life is Good in the Pegasus. James Willoughby is with me. James, what's that telling us about global racing now and, more importantly, how it might play through the next 12 months or so? Well, each year, Nick, there's a turnover of horses at the top of the world rankings. Some horses are retired due to, to go to stud. Some are injured. Some just lose their form. Now, in previous years, the last five or so, there's been a, a fairly stable picture in the world's top 20 or so, a decent quantity of horses returning uh, to the fold and thus providing us with links to previous seasons. I see this year as being slightly different to that. I think from the list you've read, we could see quite a turnover at the top of the world rankings. Nick's go, I would expect to maintain his number one slot. Well, that I suppose is conditional on him beating life is good in the Pegasus next week. But horses like Euphoria, the Japanese superstar, and Golden 60, the Hong Kong star who also runs this weekend, should bolster their reputation as the campaign goes along. Baid could prove himself the top horse um, in Europe. Um, He's currently at number eight. But apart from that, I see there being quite a lot of volatility uh, beneath that. So I expect to see some new names, and quite a few of them, proliferating the top of the charts. And in terms of nationalities and, and where these horses do most of their racing, do you think there is a shift there or not? Undoubtedly. I think it's been a trend in recent years that Japanese racing has got better and their reach uh, further around the world. But I think we're going to see that Australian horses begin to develop more of an international profile, certainly in the middle distance department. We've seen that Aidan O'Brien and others have successfully raided the Cox Plate and other Australian middle distance races. But I think that could become more elusive. I think that Very Elegant, the Melbourne Cup winner, is a very interesting runner in Europe next season. Because according to the calculations of TRC computer race ratings, she's one of the best days in the world. And really, her full merit had not been shown until she'd got the chance to really tackle a strongly run staying distance. Now, European racing would seem to be a perfect theatre for her to show her best. And I think it'll be quite sobering for many in Europe if she does what I expect her to do, which is to really show herself to be more than a match for some of our middle distance stars who'd previously uh, been able to go all over the world and, and dominate. James, I'll put it to you that the thoroughbred racing commentary rankings and the positioning of these Australian superstars in their homeland is at right angles with the perception of how good Australian thoroughbreds are from the rest of the world. Yeah, I think people are falling for the sample of one. I think people are believing that Zaki, the horse you've already mentioned, represents some kind of proof that British racing still retains dominance over Australian racing at a mile and a quarter and thereabouts. I believe Zaki is a completely different animal. For one thing, he was gelded before he arrived at Annabelle Nichols. 
And whilst I don't think he provides a comparison between the skills of his former trainer, Sir Michael Stout, and his current one, I do agree that he is massively improved because of a different um, set of circumstances around him, a different way of, of training him. And I would love to see him return to Europe and show that he's a much improved horse over the old Zaki we used to see. It's a very interesting uh, prospect. I don't know whether we will see it. But all in all, I think that we're seeing that some of British racing's problems with prize money uh, may be coming home to roost on the international state slowly. We've seen that a number of the uh, Arab potentates who basically floated British racing for decades are beginning to depart the scene. Um, and that, I think, may well have a aggregated um, uh, an aggregated impact over the next few years. So it'll be very, very interesting to see and to monitor that. There's also a power vacuum at the moment at the top of Aidan O'Brien's older horse brigade. We've already we've seen him in recent years. He's returned some great superstars to the track. He's slightly down in that department. He's got some mm. very good two-year-olds from last year. But it'll be interesting to see whether uh, how much success uh, he has. It's a very important yeah. part of the Ballydale operation. Well, absolutely. And just to give you some context there, uh, Aidan O'Brien's top eight or nine horses in these rankings over the last two years, St. Mark's Basilica, we saw, got to number one, ended up at number two, magical, retired, Order of Australia, retired, Santa Barbara, sadly, no longer with us, Anthony Van Dyke, the same, Snowfall, the same, Love is is still around, I guess, though she could have gone to the breeding shed, Circus Maximus, retired, Broom, I guess he'll keep going around, but you know, he he's a long way down the list, and I think he's going to be the the leading active Aidan O'Brien trainee in this list. So what that tells us is there's a lot of a lot of pressure on the good two-year-olds, and there are some good ones. Point Lonsdale, Luxembourg looks brilliant. Tenebrism looked fantastic in the Chievely Park. They, they're carrying an awful lot on their young shoulders for, for Aidan this season. Yes. Now, a major factor then in a number of the horses that you were listed was the identity of their sire, Galileo. Because he has sadly departed the scene. His impact will go on for a, a few more years yet, of course. But eventually, there's going to have to be um, a, a new sort of super sire to carry Bydell's hopes around the globe. Now, Wharton Bassett is presumably supposed to be that stallion. It's interesting to see whether this will really work out in the numbers expected for Ballydor. Now, whilst he's going to be covering loads of really top-class mares, it can't be taken for granted that he'll be quite as good as, as their expectations. Certainly, he gets some very good-looking stock. Um, and he's already got a couple of really top horses. So we'll see how he can carry their hope. But they, Aidan O'Brien will probably find the, um, some substitutes and replacements for the horses that have departed his yard. Uh, he's such a brilliant trainer and has been able to do that, has been able to renew his ranks uh, of older horses over the years from, from season to season. But it's not quite sure where the, the identity of them of those horses are going to come from right now. And it'll be one of the interesting elements of what's going to be an absolutely fascinating 2022 campaign around the world. So as you heard there, Golden 60 is looking to equal Silent Witness's all-time record of 17 consecutive wins in Hong Kong. And so many of Golden 60s have been at the very highest level as well. He's a charismatic horse who's invariably brilliantly ridden by Vincent Ho. Uh, J.A. McGrath joins me now, our regular Hong Kong correspondent. Uh, Jimmy, is this horse capturing the imagination as much as he should be? Yes, I, I think that, Nick. Uh, yeah, I think if you go back to Beauty Generation, he was 
he was writing the the record books, rewriting the record books before him, Viva Pataka. Uh, and uh, yeah, Hong Kong fans do latch onto a horse, and I really think they've latched onto this guy. Uh, he is charismatic, if you can call a horse charismatic, uh, and he, he is uh, he is a real favourite from it for everyone. Um, is this just going to be another cakewalk for him? Uh, he's not facing a, a big field and he looks to have a, a massive edge. Are there hidden dangers lurking or, or is the danger himself? The hidden danger is always an inside draw. He's drawn gate number one. Now, in theory, that's a fantastic draw. But when you've got guys like Zach Purton drawn in four on uh, Waikuku, um, I would say that, and in a small field, it is tactical. It can be a tactical night, uh, nightmare for, for Vincent. Last time it was interesting when he won. He won the Hong Kong Mile on International Day. Really good win. But he dragged him back to last. He, I think he drew two and he dragged him back to last and then he went around the field. Um, you, you know, the odds of being able to do that in consecutive runs when you've got these jockeys who are so aware of what he's going to try and do, uh, I think it's more difficult than it appears on paper. On paper, he's rated 125. He's rated seven pounds internationally above uh, more than this, who appears to be his main, main danger. But it's not going to be simple. I'm just hoping he can get some clear air at some stage, gets a break, and he'll be away. But he needs that clear air. So that's Golden 60, and he is running, if you want to watch it, in the UK on Sky Sports Racing, you can, and it's 8.05 UK time. And then there's the Centenary Sprint Cup. You'll have to get a bit up a bit earlier at 6 to watch that. Jim, how do you see this one playing out? Yeah, it's a, it's a very interesting race, Nick. Uh, we've got eight runners, as you say. Um, uh, six of them actually ran in the Hong Kong Sprint, which, of course, uh, was that... Uh, unfortunate pile-up on the, on the home turn when four horses fell. The winner of that race, Sky Field, he's well-credentialed. He's got to come into the race again. Courier Wonder, who finished third that day with Joe Marrera aboard, he was the big improver last year. He won five races on the bounce. This year, he's yet to win. This season, he's yet to win. However, uh, his last run was pretty good, and uh, it's good enough to win this. So, for me, it's Courier Wonder to beat Sky Field. And Hot King Prawn, who's... Uh, his record is remarkable, 12 from 26. He's a horse who's always going to be dangerous. So thank you to Jim and to James and to Tim earlier in the show. Lydia is with me and has a tip for you for today. My primary tip is actually tomorrow. I think Fantasticus will run well today at, at Lingfield, going back up to almost three miles. I think that's going to really suit him. But my tip is um, tomorrow, Saturday, at Ascot in the 255 Palmersville. He's won both of his starts so far this season. I think he's very well handicapped. Um, a, a bit of a step up in trip is a positive. I think he'll do better still over further. So that's... Palmer's Hill for the John Joe O'Neill's senior and junior in the 255. I also think that I'm also very interested in Twilight Twist in the opening race at Ascot, the 12.35, because he did, he's much better than the finishing position suggests um, when fourth behind in turn to Sybilla last time. He took quite a significant stumble, got shuffled right back in a, in a race, a steadily run race, and he came through to finish fourth. He was better than that. Yeah, that bare form suggests he's been given plenty of time to recover, and he's interesting as, as well. But the 255, Palmer's Hill. Lydia, thanks so much. Thank you very much for listening. That was Friday, January the 21st. I'll see you again on Monday. Bye-bye. You've been listening to Nick Luck Daily, brought to you in association with Fitzdares, the Racehorse Owners Association and Thoroughbred Racing Commentary.
Thank you.